Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Rather than looking at cities from a design perspective, Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation inform our built environment. This series is about affordable housing, and in each episode, I speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing. Think of Hidden Cities as a kind of idiot's guide to housing affordability, where I, an idiot in this field, speak with experts to make these often complex policies understandable. This episode is about the impact of short-stay accommodation on the housing market. Many people will have heard about the impact of Airbnb and other platforms on housing affordability and rental availability, but for years there was limited data to support these discussions. I spoke with Dr Julia Verdu from the University of Tasmania about her research. She has put statistics and numbers to these narratives in Hobart, a city that has particularly felt the impact of short-stay accommodation. This interview was recorded in early April 2020, as the impacts of COVID-19 were beginning to reveal and expose the full extent of short-stay accommodation on Hobart's housing market. In three weeks in March, as Tasmania shut its borders, furnished short-term rental availability rose a huge 530% as hosts moved their homes away from accommodation markets and into, or often back into, the rental market. If you need some statistics for your next dinner party conversation about housing, Julia helps step through how short-stay accommodation helped contribute to declining rental availability and rising housing prices. We felt the need to really try and understand what was going on and to put some evidence and data to that, you know, what was becoming a bit more of a public and political debate around housing in, in Hobart. So, you know, one of the things that we sensed was going on was that there was some change in the short-stay accommodation market and certainly over that period of time from 2017, there had been an absolute growth in tourism but also in the short-stay accommodation sector. So really... I became interested because, yeah, there were a group of us who wanted to, to understand a little bit more about that and it seemed to be a fairly opportunistic kind of thing for me to do <laughs> yeah. given some of the research that I'd been doing. So, so yeah, so it was part of a team effort but my focus in particular was short-stay accommodation and, and so over the last 18 months to two years, you know, probably on a kind of six-monthly basis, there, there's been a bit of, of activity in my work just about focusing back in on what's happening in the short-stay accommodation market and sort of aligning that with broad Order, supply and demand issues and trying to understand and put some evidence to the wider um, uh, media and political debate going on in, in Tasmania around housing challenges. Just thinking about, I guess, kind of the history of short-stay accommodation, when mm. did organisations like Airbnb and stays.com, when did they first arrive in Australia and was there any legislation that was necessary to kind of facilitate that? So as far as I know, short-stay accommodation arrived rather sneakily through the back door into Australia around yeah. 2012. Um, mm-hmm. And when I say it kind of snuck in the back door, there, there's no federal legislation that at the time was sort of governing short-stay accommodation in the in the new form that it was sort of presenting itself in Airbnb and some of those other platforms. And it was Airbnb, I guess, that started in Australia in 2012. Of course, they've been around since 2008 or so. And given that a lot of the activity that we've seen in short-stay accommodation and Airbnb has been over the last five years in particular, and if you think about Tasmania, that's been really only the last two to three years, it's taken a little while to sort of make its presence felt and so when it came in in 2012 it was slow and small and not really recognised for 
the impact that, that and influence that it would later have because it wasn't traditional, it wasn't um, aligned with or it didn't look like, really look like the traditional accommodation sector. We really just had hosts who were using an online platform to use their own properties and assets to, to provide accommodation for others. So it kind of snuck in under the radar. We didn't really have any legislation around that, certainly not federally, and it was all up to the states in terms of how their regulations were set out. And for some states, that was state regulation for and sitting within planning frameworks. For others, it was all the local council regulation. So, you know, in and of itself, that's been interesting just to see the way that different states and territories have gone along a pathway of, of regulating um, or not. Not every state and territory has done that. Yeah. But for some, it has been much more difficult. Say for Western Australia, everything sits under kind of the, the local council areas and they've had to really work to to figure out how they bring together some sort of broader frameworks that sit across the state alongside some of the more localised council regulations that they have in place. So that, you know, there's a complexity to that. But of course, the complexity was also around the fact that, that this kind of accommodation didn't look like the traditional accommodation. So you couldn't just overlay those regulations that have been there and existing for traditional accommodation providers in terms of health and safety and accommodation and all those kinds of standards, overlaying them on on this new form of accommodation wasn't necessarily appropriate either. So regulation has been slow and it's been really about state governments and local governments just recognising the impact and trying to understand how best to approach and to govern given that impact. Could you talk through what your research found, what the impact of Airbnb and other short-stay accommodation has been on rent availability? So I think the first thing to say is that, yes, we, we did want to put some evidence to, you know, what were a lot of uh, claims flying around back and forth, like, yes, short-stay accommodation is, is um, you know, destroying our... Um, our local housing market and then of course Airbnb would respond saying no it has nothing to do with it and it was just it was quite uh, an argument that wasn't really informed by good evidence so what we wanted to do was provide some evidence to that but we wanted to do that in a way that wasn't just focused on looking at short-stay accommodation as a causal factor we wanted to understand that in in the context of the wider issues around what the supply and demand factors were in the market over the last two years and to try and and kind of locate that in a broader understanding of of those supply and demand contexts. So so what we did was we, you know, we had a, a team of us working on different aspects of supply and demand factors. We wanted to, I guess, try and understand the things that we looked at were inward and outward migration and population growth. There were some particular demographics in Australia. that We've had some population growth in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. For example, younger people flowing inward to Tasmania, but the younger people who require their own independent housing, for example, are not going back into their family home. You know, growth yeah. in overseas student numbers coming to University of Tasmania and, of course, needing housing. So, some of those demographic and population issues um, we looked at. We looked at, you know, the uh, mismatch in supply of new homes, for example, in and and the areas of strong demand. So where construction is happening, where new houses are being built, where there is supply growing, doesn't necessarily match with the areas that are, are strong in demand for new housing. So that mismatch yeah. creates a problem in terms of supply and demand. Growing construction delays, for example, we looked at increased in, in demand in social housing and the need for a lot, you know, a lot more capital capital funding to be channeled into supply side interventions like social housing. So the need for new social housing, the need to incentivise or subsidise developers or community housing providers, for example, to build new accommodation, to build new uh, appropriate and affordable housing for people. And of course, aligning the planning 
developing instruments to that end. So, so they were the number of the things that we looked at, as well as short-stay accommodation. So the research that we did on that was really looking at the exponential growth in this. We used inside Airbnb because Airbnb itself don't produce any of their data for, for analysis at all. So, so we had to go elsewhere. So we've used inside Airbnb and that is a an American-based data activist called Murray Cox who releases his data for cities across the world just to put some evidence in the debate and to make yeah. sure that, that cities and gover governing bodies have the evidence they need. So we've used that inside Airbnb data. Um, which is a monthly a snapshot of one particular day per month of what's going on across the whole site, scraped yeah. from behind the site. So using that data, we were able to look at the growth in Airbnb. We were able to ascertain that, you know, alongside some of the other things that we were seeing in terms of population and supply demand in terms of construction, when we factored some of that in, that we... We estimated, the best guess, was that there was a, a loss of around 400 properties from the long-term rental market over the two years sort of prior to the end of last year. In a city as small as Hobart, the loss of 400 properties has a huge impact. This is 400 less homes available to people. By mid-2018, Hobart's residential vacancy rate was the lowest in the country at 0.7% against a national average of 2.3%. And in 2019, Hobart had the lowest median income of any Australian capital city, while its rental prices outgrew Melbourne's. And that was just in the Hobart LGA alone. And there's close to about 670 property, properties lost in the greater Hobart region over that period of time. So that's not, it's not a small number, given yeah. <laughs> that Hobart is quite a small city. Um, and that sort of equates to around, you know, between 5 and 6% of, of the private rental market in Hobart local government area. So what does that mean? Is short-stay accommodation responsible for housing pressures in Tasmania? So that was um, where we sort of came to with our estimation of what was going on with short-stay accommodation. And, you know, just to reiterate, it was not just, not just short-stay accommodation, but sort of sits within a broader framework of thinking about supply and demand. But certainly uh, all those factors together were pointing very much to a, a housing market in Hobart that was under increasing pressure with, um, and of course, the data coming out around, you know, the extremely low vacancy rates and the rising, the ongoing kind of issue of rising rents and rising house values and all that taken into account. We could see that certainly short-stay accommodation was contributing to some of the, those pressures and creating gap, I guess, where, where people who were struggling to afford you know, appropriate and affordable housing already were beginning to fall through the gaps because the state safety nets weren't there and the private rental market just can't, can't accommodate everyone. If you could talk about what legislation could be introduced to de-incentivise or mm. shift the appeal of people purchasing homes for short-term mm. accommodation, but then also thinking about um, if it also requires a shift in mentality because I think mm. it seems to kind of you know people that have uh, have investment properties are doing things that are completely not only legal but encouraged by mm. government as you know something that's good for the economy and good for themselves and good for their families wealth if you've looked at both kind of legal instruments but also what social 
reconsidering mm. of what a home means might be necessary? That's a really interesting question, actually. And I know that some Ahuri research from last year certainly looked at the fact that, that the attractiveness of short-stay accommodation in Australia, and in particularly kind of high-growth tourist regions and high-demand sort of urban centres, is changing the way that we purchase our homes. And one of the, the things that they, they suggest is that, you know, one of the factors that come into play when someone is considering the purchase of their home is, is it something that will be useful for Airbnb? Can I capitalise on this asset even more and invest and use this as an investment beyond just the value of the house itself to actually capitalise on, on it, you know, from accommodation perspective? If anyone's looked on real estate websites in the last year, you might have noticed that many listed properties for purchase have both the expected rental yield and expected short-stay accommodation profits listed. This helps potential buyers assess whether a property is a good investment. Yeah, I find that quite fascinating. And, and I think, you know, my research has focused more on the kind of the legal and regulatory instruments that, that we use, but I certainly am quite fascinated by that. And, and I guess what sits under that is also the way that the accommodation is based on platform economies as well, which I think is, mm-hmm. you know, also a very interesting technological innovation that our cities haven't quite, and actually as a, as a nation, we haven't really caught up with in understanding the legislative and regulatory impacts or, or opportunities to properly regulate that. But yes, yeah, certainly, certainly interesting from a social perspective and the way it's changing our buying behaviours. Um, I think one of the things that we don't really know is what the outcome of the pandemic will be on our housing markets. There's still so much to be understood and seen um, into the coming months and even years around the, the effects of this. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's my hope that that this might change people's perception about the use of their home and their secondary homes as as most valuably um, put to use in a short-stay accommodation sense. And I think it will probably put a little bit of brakes on that for people because another consideration now in terms of the future capitalisation of their property will be, well, if we have a pandemic, I'm not going to be able to use my property for short-stay accommodation, certainly to the extent that I have before or even to any extent as we've seen in the last two months. So so that's a really interesting thing socially, I think, in terms of social decision, in terms of the, yeah. the um, social impact of the decision-making around people's use of properties. But from a, a regulatory and perhaps legal perspective, I think mm-hmm. Tasmania is a good ca- a case in point for, a, you know, an interesting pathway along that kind of regulatory decision-making and governance around short-stay accommodation. Um, So what we saw two years ago in Tasmania was uh, the government was going to um, regulate quite strongly and they moved away from that kind of at a last minute, (laughs) at the last minute. And and in mid-2017, they decided to to sort of introduce the the Planning Directive 6, which was a a kind of quasi-regulation of of, (laughs) um, Airbnb or the the short-stay accommodation platforms. And really, it it wasn't about limiting short-stay accommodation. It was really about just sort of providing a platform for, for tourism to have the leeway to use short stay accommodation, you know, openly. So, uh, so what that was at the at the time was that people, you know, there were sort of two two sort of sharing um, categories. Basically, you, if you're in your own home, you were permitted to share it with others, or while you were temporarily absent, and there was no permit required. Or if it was a secondary home, you required a permit, but you were permitted so up to 200 meters square of floor space. You were permitted to use it for short stay accommodation, and that was basically yeah. it, really. Since that time, there's been um, a political and media attention on the housing market challenges in Hobart, in particular. 
And that has really pressured governments to to be seen to be doing something about housing. So and there was a call for a legislative inquiry into short stay accommodation. There's been a parliamentary inquiry into housing affordability. And then in July last year, there was new legislation called the, the Short Stay Accommodation Act 2019 that came into effect. And basically, this was about improving data capture and improving compliance under the current regulations. So there was no real shift in the current regulation. So basically what happened, it was it put a, a framework for a more comprehensive permit system, which I think is actually a really, has been a really good step. And the way my colleague um, did like to explain it, it's like we never really had an odometer before for driving this particular regulatory car. Um, and now there's an odometer. It, it sets out the yep. kind of boundaries around, you know, what you can and can't do. But what we still don't have a very good handle on is the speed that we should be <laughs> going. Yep. We've got a good permit system. Basically what that does it's said that you know if everyone needs to register that they are a short stay accommodation host or provider um, they need to register that with the platform they need to register that with their with the government um, and so you either need to have a permit as per what I said earlier to do with the PD6 that you are, have a secondary or an investment property that you're using, you need a permit for it. That needs to be displayed on the website or, or any, any hosting listing that you have on any platform. But you also, if you don't, if you're just sharing your own home, you also that also needs to be registered and it needs to be put on the site that you don't need a permit. So that enables the government to capture the data they need in terms of the scope and the range of the, the sector. Um, and and then hopefully that gives some improved data capture yep. for them and also the ability to put some compliance in place. The other thing that is really useful about the Act is that it requires the platforms to display those permits, but it also do, requires the platforms to produce quarterly data. And some of that data is about, um, you know, the listing addresses, whether the permits are required, what kind of listing it is, if it's a principal place of residence or not, the number of bedrooms, how many times it's been listed during that three-month period of time. So that data is also provided to the government, which is a good basis for understanding the, the scope of the or the landscape of the of the sector as well. Yeah. So that's a really good start. It's a good start for a, a permit system that can work for the government, I think. And so far, we have sort of one round of data that's been released by Airbnb. And interestingly, that data corroborates so closely to what we found in our own research from inside Airbnb. Um, and it's our estimates of around 400 yeah. properties in the Hobart LDA area having been removed from the long-term private rental market up until you know early this year is really accurate. That's shown in that data too. Of course, what's happening now is, as you've already mentioned, and you've been doing a bit of research on this, it's, it's changed dramatically. But I think, you know, if, if we do end up, you know, with, a, with an opening market again, with tourism starting to come back into play, It'll be interesting to see what happens again and it would be nice to think that we can do a bit more work so that we don't just go back to business as usual. And one of the things that we have been arguing for yes. <laughs> um, in addition to, to sort of introduce legislation that is, is going to shift some of those social attitudes in particular are around improving the, the ability of local government areas to respond a bit more flexibly and nimbly to what's going on in terms of their own communities. So again, to use Hobart as an example, and, and Hobart's not the only place. It is the most acute. It has the most acute issues and challenges when it comes to the housing market in Tasmania. But we're starting to see, we, up, up until COVID-19, we were starting to see yeah. regions like Launceston um, heading down a similar path. And of course, Greater Hobart has been also under some pressure as yeah. well and some spots on the on the East Coast and probably for a little bit different reasons but and, and perhaps might require different responses. But 
but certainly, I mean, to use Hobart LGA as an example, it would be great for the Hobart, um, the city of Hobart to have some flexibility in how they choose to respond. So given that there is huge, huge housing challenges, I have been huge housing challenges in Hobart, for them to be able to put, you know, a cap on on the amount, how many nights per year that you can list your property or yeah. put a freeze on permits or, you know, something that we suggested was putting a higher fee and making it an annual fee so that when people come to consider whether it's worth or not for them to be taking their property off the longer term rental market, mm-hmm. there is a little bit more of a pause and a c- yeah. consideration about what that tipping point in terms of capital return is and, you know, a bit of a deeper consideration that it that might tip some people, you know, away from making that decision to list their home and short stay yeah. accommodation. So yeah, that's some of the things that we would still say would be great for yeah. um, the Tasmanian system to have in place. <laughs> um, that flexibility is not so easy at the moment because of the planning system. You mentioned that your research before looks at supply and demand as mm. kind of a way to consider housing. And does Hobart have a housing stock problem or is it a distribution of existing stock problem or is there the wrong kinds of homes available? I think that that it's probably a, there's some of each in there. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see the change in the housing market over the last number of months and that there has been such an improvement in the vacancy rate. You know, what we know from beforehand is that we do have a huge shortage of supply here in Hobart. And yes, some of that supply was due to the fact that there was conversions from long-term rental into short-stay accommodation. So that was considered lost lost supply. But there were a number of other supply um, demand factors. Um, and one of the big ones, I think, that is, is worth still um, talking about, and I think, you know, through the pandemic and then and beyond it's it's really a, a key um, housing issue in Tasmania and Australia but um, we're just talking about Tasmania now is that and that is social housing and the yeah. the residualization I guess of social housing and and the kind of the narrowing and and contracting of a housing a particular section of the housing market that has you know for, for so many decades in in um, Tasmania been a, a safety net for so many people who have not been able to afford um, accommodation and we're the private so what we've seen in the private rental market that hasn't had the capacity to carry the demand that has yeah. been required over the last number of years we've seen people of course falling through the gaps and social housing hasn't has had the capacity to pick up the slack there and and yeah. that is a real problem you know in in terms of across the whole whole housing market spectrum you know one of the things that research has been pointing to really strongly in the past year and this is not just for Tasmania but Australia is the need to to put capital funding into you know direct government cap federal funding into building social housing supply is there anything else that you that we didn't cover that you wanted to add is anything significant that I've missed or failed to kind of include there? Something that I've been thinking about kind of more um, more recently as I've learned to understand a bit more about the sector is is just noticing that, you know, across across the world and across, um, doesn't really matter what jurisdiction it is, that the response to regulating and, and um, legislating short-stay accommodation has often fallen into the hands of the local city uh, governing bodies. Yeah. And that seems to be the most appropriate place for for a number of reasons but I think what fascinates me is is that actually the debate about um, short-stay accommodation is one that's much wider than just the the localized impacts of you know what really are short-stay 
accommodation hosts and the cumulative effect of a num- like a whole lot of those across the city. What also interests me is the issues around privacy and so data privacy and the issues around public interests. And, you know, governments, we're seeing governments trying to act in the interests of the public. So acting in the interests of our local housing market challenges and the locals who are struggling to find homes and and really struggling to do that because actually what's going on underneath is that we've got kind of new innovative technological conditions that are changing our urban landscapes and really are doing that under the radar without being accountable and held responsible for a lot of the outcomes. So you're kind of having local city councils and governing bodies who are trying to grapple with the effects in their local areas of, of what in effect are you know, yeah, changing, changing kind of platform and technological conditions that are actually global and, and, you know, massive corporations um, in effect. And the influence, the political and the financial and technological influence of these are far beyond the capacity of local governments to to sort of deal with. And I guess what we're seeing really when you look at it is that these platform economies are de facto regulators of our housing supply. And, you know, I don't think that's really widely recognised as such. And so, and it's not talked about in that way. So, you know, how do you actually regulate something when actually there's regulation going on? It's just behind the scenes and it's in new ways that we haven't recognised as actually even existing yet. You know, these platform economies are actually becoming a form of infrastructure that we don't you know, we don't recognise that on paper and we're not dealing with it in that way. So, you know, to the extent to which we can appropriately regulate, um, I think that's yet to be seen and, and maybe it's going to require much deeper deeper and wider work to do it properly in the future. I'll leave you on that alarming and challenging note. If you're interested in Julia's work on housing in Tasmania, take a look at the work of the Housing and Community Research Unit at UTAS. And since recording this conversation, Airbnb has been severely impacted internationally by COVID travel restrictions and the organisation has laid off 1,900 of their 5,000 staff. But in Tasmania, where borders remain closed, internal travel has rendered it more financially viable for hosts to provide accommodation for local weekenders than to place a house back on the rental market.